I'm delighted to welcome back for part two. This time he's coming to us live from the hospital. Such is his busy schedule. The author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark Soames, welcome back, sir. Great to be back, Ed, and thank you. It's great to have you back. And I thought today we'd talk about how you got on your journey towards consciousness, because at the time, as we established yesterday, it was kind of frowned upon to explore consciousness. It was even seen some might say as career suicide, and you were it was frowned upon for you. So you looked for somewhere that was a little bit safer. And this was looking at sleep, but in particular, the difference in state between wakefulness and and sleep. And in there, you kind of snuck out snuck in a little bit of consciousness, because that wasn't frowned upon. So maybe we'll start there about where you started, because this became the, the subject for your research doctorate. It may be um difficult for for uh, uh, people nowadays to appreciate uh, that really not that long ago uh, 40 years ago um it was not a respectable topic consciousness uh, in neuroscience um the only aspect of consciousness that was respectable was the sleep waking cycle um so the the the, the brain mechanisms as to how uh, what, what is happening uh, when we fall asleep and what is happening when we wake up again. Um, and that also included the brain mechanisms of REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, um, which is when we dream. So um, because I was so frustrated by the, the neglect of consciousness uh, and subjectivity and all that went with it, um, I thought, well, this was my, this was the back door that I could go through. Um, I would I would make my research on brain mechanisms of sleep, but in particular focusing on rapid eye movement sleep, um, and thereby looking at this intriguing phenomenon of dreaming, which is after all just uh, uh, a paradoxical intrusion into the unconsciousness of sleep. Uh, are these are these episodes of consciousness? So um, by 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 linking what I was doing. Uh, to all of those uh, sort of respectable questions about sleep versus wakefulness and so on, um, I was able to sneak in uh, what is in fact an, an intensely subjective uh, 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 phenomenon, which is which is dreaming. I say intensely subjective because um, with other subjective states, waking subjective states, you can at least interact with the the, the person who's experiencing the, them. Um, whereas in sleep, obviously, that's precluded. Uh, so the only way that you can study dreams um, is a, a, a retrospective uh, single witness account, because that's the other thing about dreams is that, uh, you know, if I say to you, I am subjectively experiencing the color red, and then you look at this surface and you say, yes, I too am experiencing the color red, that thing over there, we're both calling it the color red. You can't do that with dreams because only the dreamer experiences their dream. So it, it really was um, uh, quite a leap to go from brain mechanisms of sleep and wakefulness uh, to going to the brain mechanisms of dreaming. But that was how I managed, uh, I managed to do it. Um, in, in all, my, my, my aim was to, um, we had already, uh, by the time I, I did my research, we had already pretty much nailed down uh, what's going on in the brain uh, when uh, it, it switches off, as it were, uh, and 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 t turns into sleep mode, 
And we also knew um, a good deal, uh, in, in fact, pretty much most of what we, uh, what we needed to know uh, about how uh, the brain transitions from ordinary deep sleep into rapid eye movement sleep. But nobody had studied the subjective experience of dreaming in relation to these things. All that, all that we knew was that the two things correlated. If you wake people up during uh, REM sleep, uh, you have pretty much 90% chance of getting a dream report. If you wake people up during non-REM sleep, you have less than a 10% chance of getting a dream report. So we knew these two things occur at the same time. And we also knew that if there's damage to the part of the brain uh, that, that generates REM sleep, um, then obviously REM sleep uh, if, if, uh, either falters severely or it's lost entirely. But nobody had taken the next step, uh, which is a pretty obvious question, uh, which is to ask those patients who have lost REM sleep, uh, uh, tell me, uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, uh, now that you've lost REM sleep, uh, I presume uh, that you've also lost dreaming. Is that the case? Uh, th th that's, that hadn't been done. So it was that sort of thing that I wanted to do to actually uh, talk to the patients about their experience um, and tie it to these objective observations as to where the damage was in their brains on the assumption that damage to different parts of the brain, uh, the, the, the twofold assumption, the one that damage to the part of the brain that generates REM sleep will lead to loss of the experience of dreaming. Uh, and secondly, that damage to other parts of the brain uh, should have uh, differential effects on dream content and quality. So for example, um, if you have damage to the visual parts of your brain, which uh, affect your visual perception uh, in waking cognition, presumably there should be some analogous or equivalent alteration um, in, the, in the visual quality of your dreams. And likewise, um, for language parts of the brain and, and so on and so forth. So, so those were the, the, the things I was, I was interested in determining. Because it's subjective, um, you know, you 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 need r relatively large numbers of patients um, because you need to see uh, if I have ten people with damage here, ten people with damage there, ten people with damage in the other place, uh, whether they re whether they report the same thing. And I just want to emphasize that you know there's something uh, hidden in what I've just said, which is kind of obvious, but 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 deserves saying, uh, which is that although we're dealing with subjective phenomena, if ten people with damage to the same part of the brain, report the same experience. Uh, well, there's no reason to doubt uh, that even though it's subjective, you know, it happened in all 10 of them. So it's probably a thing. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I was really not, uh, as you can gather, I was really not, um, uh, I couldn't quite grasp why is it that we can't do science on subjective phenomena? It seems pretty straightforward to me. I really understood this. and. From my layman perspective, you in your research, you expected to find the patients, like you said, with damage to the visual cortex, would therefore experience non visual dreams, and language, language damage, so damage to the language cortex would have non verbal dreams. So as you say, this is the ABCs of research, this is what you would expect. But you discovered something entirely different, which was that subjective reports, but across a multitude of different types of patients. Um, so, because as 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 you by now um, and our listeners and viewers by now will have noticed, I'm I'm giving you very full responses 
uh, I have to try and restrain myself because that study, it was, as I said in our previous discussion, once you start doing this sort of thing, um, the sort of thing that we're talking about, which it was so anathema uh, in neuroscience at the time, you, you're like a kid in the toy shop. You know, you just can't help discovering things because nobody's bothered to look before. And so, you know, the discoveries flowed thick and fast in that study, which which um, extended over several years. Because, as I said a moment ago, I had to I had to collect uh, data on hundreds of patients. And of course, unlike animal studies where the scientists actually cause the damage in the in in the poor creatures that they're studying. Um, when it comes to human studies, um, you have to wait for uh, nature to to uh, visit these uh, misfortunes upon people. So you know it takes a long time to do a large study like that. Um, but as I said, I'm going to restrain myself unless you tell me not to. I won't report everything uh, that I found. I'll just zoom in on on the 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 the, the, the really most important observations. Um, the the first one was a whopping great surprise, uh, which is that damage to the mesopontine tegmentum, that's the, the anatomical region we're talking about, uh, which generates REM sleep. Uh, as I said uh, 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 a minute ago, um, it had already been established, uh, both in, in humans and in uh, other uh, animals, because uh, it's not only humans who have REM sleep, um, all mammals have it. Um, that uh, damage to that part of the brain does indeed lead to loss of REM sleep, but nobody had ever talked to the patients. And so um, uh, my uh, 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 observation, again, here's an example of a kid in a toy shop where you can't help but discover something because nobody's ever talked to the patients before. Um, one after another, I got 18 of them all together with damage to that part of the brain. Um, each one of them reported preservation of dreaming. So, you know, uh, there you see um, the, the price we pay for not collecting subjective data. You know, that, uh, yes, we'd established uh, the objective fact that REM sleep is lost with damage to the mesopontine tegmentum. We also know that REM sleep correlates with dreaming, um, but nobody had bothered to actually uh, gather data on the dream experience itself. And when I did so, uh, each and every one of those patients reported preservation of dreams. So again, just to pick up on what I said a few minutes ago, why would you not believe them? Why would 18 people with serious illness, you know, affecting a, a, a really life-sustaining part of their brains, uh, you know, why would they all collude uh, and conspire? Uh, they don't even know each other, of course. Uh, why would they? Why would they all report that dreaming is preserved when when it's not? So there was every reason to believe that what they're reporting, you know, is is a scientific finding, a, a reliable, um, solid finding. Um, it was made all the more um, um, uh, um, sort of uh, convincing by the fact that I then, uh, well, I say then it, these things happened in parallel, but uh, alongside the dawning realization that patients uh, with loss of REM sleep due to pontine brainstem lesions, do not lose dreaming. Uh, I was simultaneously observing that patients with lesions elsewhere in the brain did lose dreaming, uh, but in those patients, REM sleep was preserved. 
So uh, we call that a, a, a double dissociation. We in neuropsychology we call what I've just described a double dissociation, which works like this: if damage to brain part A leads to loss of function A, but the preservation of function B, and damage to brain part B leads to loss of function B, but preservation of function A, then you're dealing with two different functions. They're not the same thing. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, so that's what I found. Damage to one part of the brain leads to loss of REM sleep with preservation of dreaming. A damage to another part of the brain uh, leads to loss of dreaming with preservation of REM sleep. That means REM sleep and dreaming are not the same thing. Um, and, you know, uh, when we teach research methods to undergraduate students, we point out to them that a correlation uh, is not a cause. You know, the fact that two things happen at the same time doesn't mean that they that the one's causing the other, or indeed, which was what we which was what we were led to believe uh, by the earlier researchers, or indeed that they are the same thing. That REM sleep and dreaming are just the same thing observed uh, objectively and, and and subjectively. Uh, they they're not the same thing. Uh, they merely correlate with each other. Um, the the interest then turned in in my research. Uh, my interest then turned to uh, those brain regions, the, da the damage to which lead to loss of dreaming. Um, and uh, actually, there were two such areas. One of them was not such a surprise. Um, we were speaking earlier about the visual parts and the verbal parts of the brain. Uh, the part of the brain uh, that uh, damage to which the one of the two parts of the brain damage to which leads to a total cessation of dreaming with preservation of REM sleep is the parietal occipital junction, uh, which is, which is um, where visual and auditory and somatosensory information all come together. Um, and so it's the, the technical term that we use for that is heteromodal perception. In other words, all the modalities combined. And if you think about it, well, that's what a dream is. A dream is a, a, a perceptual experience, which is both visual and verbal, the auditory, uh, and 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 somatosensory and so on. So <clears throat> the part of the brain that's able to generate this kind of heteromodal perceptual experience, if it's damaged, well, it's not such a surprise that then you can't experience hetero heteromodal perceptual things like dreams. So that wasn't so interesting, apart from the fact that there was a double dissociation with REM sleep, um, which was interesting. Um, but the other part of the brain uh, that I found uh, leads to damage to which leads to a total uh, cessation of dreaming with preservation of REM sleep is called, forgive all these technical terms, it's, 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 it's called the ventromesial quadrant uh, of the frontal lobes. It's the white matter at the bottom and in the middle of, of the frontal lobes. In other words, just behind uh, and above your eyes. Um, patients with damage there on both sides of the brain, in other words, bilateral damage, um, that you have to have damage on both sides affecting those white tracts um, in their entirety. These patients uh, uh, lost the capacity to dream. And um, the, the, the interesting thing there was clearly this region is crucial for dreams because if it's damaged, uh, dreaming becomes impossible. Um, but um, there was no obvious reason why that part of the brain should be involved with dreaming. In other words, it has nothing to do with perception. It has nothing to do with memory. Um, its, it's, uh, it's, its functions are, are entirely uh, uh, on the surface, on the face of things, entirely unrelated. 
uh, to what goes on in dream experience. So it was a real surprise um, that damage there should lead to a loss of meaning. And so that that made me uh, interested in what is the function of this part of the brain, um, uh, because it's a if, forgive the imagery, but it's like spaghetti junction there. You know, there's pathways going left, right, and center, connecting everything to everything. Um, so it, 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 there, there are many um, sub pathways within that area, um, which were which came into. Um, the the realm of possibility. It might be this pathway. It might be that one. They all come together there and run very close to each other. So so the question for me then became which one of them is the critical part, um, and then that became the the focus, uh, uh, the next focus of my of my research in in that area. Um, and that you said correctly that that study that I just described was my doctoral study. Um, that ended with just the, the the discovery that this area, broadly speaking, is crucial. But then after my uh, uh, doctoral research was concluded, I then uh, pursued this question further. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, that led me to the next phase of my research. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, Mark. And I, you know, I, I, I have to remind our audience again that this may seem... Yeah, yeah, at the moment, but this was 40 years ago. Again, you were almost flying under the radar here, so nobody would notice kind of kind of, and as you said, I, I keep thinking of you kind of going, I can't believe nobody's looked at this before. And and I think about the behaviorists. And for me, when I was a kid, I used to love taking apart toys and seeing, okay, well, what happens if this wire stops? You know, if I cut that wire, oh no, my my remote control car won't work anymore. And behaviorism was very much like that. It was very much, oh, press this lever and that will happen, press that lever. And you were discovering, well, I snipped this wire and there's seemingly no circuit connected here, but it's still working. What the heck is happening here? So that's that's how I understood it in my very simplistic terms. That's perfectly correct. Uh, the analogy you're using, I think, is a very, very apt one. Brilliant. So I, I'm on the same page, almost. <laughs> so I thought then we'd discuss a, a couple of things, a couple of more ingredients I'm going to throw in, and please do bring us on to the next part of your research. One of the things you mentioned was the pharmacological impacts. So levodopa was a drug used, for example, by your your friend, Oliver Sacks, may he rest in peace, who tested this on for those people who haven't seen it, the movie Awakening, but also then within awareness. And for people with Parkinson's, for example, what we're doing there in those cases is giving people dopamine. And this can lead to psychosis. And this is why if anybody who I know, for example, I know some people with Parkinson's, they've experienced sometimes very realistic dreams, borderline hallucinations, etc. So this is all important, because this is where it brought you next. So, so let's start with Oliver Sacks' patients. They had a disease called encephalitis lethargica, which destroyed the very part of the brain we're talking about now. And uh, the fact that uh, giving them dopamine it, it didn't cure it, but it, it, it at least temporarily, the problem with dopamine with those patients, as it turned out, is it reawakened them. Oh, let me make clear. It's called encephalitis lethargica, which means the sleeping sickness. But the patients don't literally fall asleep. They just lose all motivation. They lose all spontaneity. They lose all initiative. So hold on to that uh, fact, because 
Remember, we're trying to find out what does this part of the brain do? What that tells us, it has something to do with motivation, something to do with generativity, with the with the thing that makes us with 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 volition. You know what 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 gets us going because that's what these patients lose uh, with damage there. Um, so 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 um, uh, Oliver Sacks gave them levodopa, which increases the availability of dopamine. It's a brain chemical which is depleted in those patients. Uh, and it woke them up in the sense that they regained their vitality, they regained their interest and, 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 and uh, uh, um, engagement with the world. Uh, sadly, after it did that, it then pushed them over the top. Um, so he, it was very hard to find a happy medium. Either they were completely unmotivated and, and adynamic and inert, uh, or they were hypermanic, uh, too excited, too engaged with everything, uh, and and frankly psychotic um, and uh, delusional and and hallucinatory. Um, so th there's a there's a, a, a first clue in what I've said is that that part of the brain seems to have to do with motivational drive, and secondly, uh, when it is um, when it is hyperactivated, uh, it produces a psychotic state. Uh, with hallucinations and delusions. And um, uh, that's what a dream is. A dream is an hallucinatory delusional state. Um, so um, that uh, uh, points us perhaps in the right direction. Um, the, the other thing that I observed was in the old psychosurgical literature, um, which was in the old days, it's really horrible to remember this, but in the very old days, sort of 90 years ago or so, um, patients who were psychotic um, for, for psychiatric reasons, uh, they were given a, an, an operation, a brain operation uh, called prefrontal leucotomy. Um, prefrontal leucotomy uh, was the severing of fibers in the brain, uh, which uh, in a particular area, which is the very area we're talking about, same area, um, and uh, cutting those fibers um, had the effect uh, of uh, reducing hallucinations and delusions in those patients. It also had side effects. Um, one of the side effects was that they lost all motivation. Um, but one of the psychosurgeons uh, reporting on these patients, a German named Schindler, uh, writing in the 30s or so, um, observed that if the, uh, when I say 30s or so, I honestly don't remember, but it was somewhere, you know, in the in the first half of last century. And um, uh, he observed that patients uh, who wake up from this operation, um, who continue to dream, um, they are, uh, that's a bad prognostic sign. Uh, it shows that the operation hasn't worked. And that, that made me, because I was going back over this old literature, trying to make sense of what it was that, I, that I'd discovered and, uh, and what it meant. Uh, and that uh, remark by Schindler uh, was the one that made me make the connection uh, that I just said to you, that dreams are a psychotic state. Um, and so if you can dream, um, it means you can generate hallucinations and delusions, which are artificially generated by giving the patient dopamine. Uh, which is the chemical that is transmitted uh, by these pathways. So uh, that narrowed my focus down between all of those multiple pathways. I was thinking it's the dopamine one 
the dopamine one seems to be the crucial one. Um, and um, the 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 other reasons uh, too for for um, being for 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 thinking that this might be the crucial one. Uh, that is that um, when uh, that operation was abandoned uh, uh, around uh, the middle of uh, the 1950s or so, uh, people stopped doing that operation on psychotic patients. It was because there was a new drug that had been discovered, um, which those days was called a major tranquilizer. Um, but nowadays we call that drug an antipsychotic. And what does the antipsychotic drug do? It blocks dopamine. So chemically blocking dopamine um, um, uh, prevents hallucinations and delusions. Uh, boosting dopamine chemically promotes hallucinations and delusions. Cutting those dopamine fiber pathways prevents um, uh, hallucinations and delusions. And so I thought this is probably the system. This is the one uh, that's, that, that, I'm, that, I'm, uh, that I can uh, uh, focus on. And of course, in science, uh, you then have an hypothesis. It doesn't mean that you then uh, uh, rest on your laurels. You've got a good idea. Um, you, you have to then test your idea uh, by having um, falsifiable predictions. Uh, and uh, again, uh, I, you know, this, that's normal science. All I was doing that was different was I was saying that we can make falsifiable predictions about subjective experience too. Um, you know, you, I, I, you can predict that if you increase dopamine chemically, uh, the, the, the person taking the drug, the research participant, will have more dreams. Um, if you, they'll report more dreams. If you block dopamine chemically, uh, they'll, they'll report less dreams. If you give a placebo, uh, nothing will change in their dreams. And so that's what we found. Um, I, 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 there were, in fact, two studies that I'm referring to there. The, the one was looking at the blocking of dopamine. The other one was looking at the boosting of dopamine. Uh, you boost dopamine, patient has more dreams. They're not patient. These are research participants, volunteers. And they have more dreams. Uh, interestingly, they don't have more REM sleep. So REM sleep stays the same, but they have more dreams. When I say more dreams, I mean more in number. They have more per night. They also have longer dreams. Uh, they also have more emotionally intense dreams. They also have more bizarre dreams. They also have more nightmares. So basically, every dimension of dreamness is increased by by dopamine. And those very same dimensions uh, are reduced. This is what the other study showed uh, when you block dopamine, when you give antipsychotics. Um, so uh, that was one line of evidence which, um, which uh, confirmed the hypothesis. Uh, but there were other lines too. Um, one of them was that if you put uh, it now, now remember I said animals have REM sleep uh, and and uh, just like we do. Um, we don't know if they dream just like we do, uh, but we know that in us, dreaming and REM sleep happen at the same time. They correlate. So um, that led to the hypothesis that during REM sleep, which is when dreams are most likely to be happening, um, looking at other mammals, because this, this method we, you can't do with human beings, uh, well, at least you can't do it unless you have clinical reason for doing it. You can't do it just for experimental reasons. You put an electrode uh, into those dopamine pathways uh, and you measure the firing rate of those neurons. Uh, and we, uh, it, it was uh, possible to show that the firing rate is maximal during REM sleep in those dopamine neurons. Another method called microdialysis, which is where 
you measure how much dopamine is released at the terminals of that circuit, the maximum amount of dopamine is released uh, during dreaming sleep. Um, so those, those findings together, the lesion findings, in other words, damage there, uh, leads to a loss of REM sleep. Um, um, uh, boosting that neurochemical increases REM, I mean, dreaming sleep, uh, dreams, uh, decreasing that chemical uh, um, uh, uh, has the opposite effect on dreams. Uh, measuring the firing rate of those neurons, those dopamine neurons, uh, correlates with when dreams happen. And then measuring the actual release of dopamine directly um, with microdialysis, um, that during, during dreaming sleep, uh, the dopamine release is maximal. You take all those things together, uh, you know, you've got pretty solid evidence that what drives dreams is dopamine uh, in that circuit. Um, and therefore, not, uh, it, it's, it's not the same as REM sleep, because not only does REM sleep have a different circuit, starting in a different part of the brain, leading to a different part of the brain, but also it has a different neurochemistry. The neurotransmitter uh, that generates uh, REM sleep is called acetylcholine, uh, whereas the, the neurotransmitter that generates dreaming is dopamine. So uh, not only had uh, I further confirmed that these are two separate mechanisms, but I've now um, I got in my grasp what um, the nature of the mechanism is that generates dreams. Uh, it's this particular pathway called the mesocortical, mesolimbic dopamine pathway. Um, therefore, the chemical involved is dopamine. And now comes the question, what is the function of that pathway? And it is the major motivational, uh, 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 volitional drive uh, uh, mechanism of the mammal brain. So remember I said, hold on to that observation that Sachs's patients lost all motivation. Uh, and this was the side effect of the operation that was done on the psychotic patients. In my non-dreaming patients, there was also a striking loss of motivational drive. And so we now had an idea uh, that somehow uh, dreaming uh, is related to motivation, uh, to this positive motivational urge that that dopamine circuit mediates. There I was on the on the track of uh, what is what is it that causes dreams? Well, it seems to be dreams are motivated in some way, in some very powerful way. I'm going to kind of go off the book a little bit here because I'd love your opinion on this because one of the things doing shows like this and reading eclectically absolutely does for me is it gives me a huge sense of empathy. So when you encounter somebody with a with a what is essentially a neuro I suppose they're neurodiverse in some type of, you know, ADHD, or even with Parkinson's, as I mentioned, or dementia or something like that, you family members can get frustrated with them, schizophrenia, psychosis, and you kind of kind of come on, just get out there and hit the gym and you'll feel better. But when you read about this, and you read about dopamine, and we've covered great shows on the on the show recently, Mark, we had Anna Lemke talking about her book, Dopamine Nation, Daniel Z. Lieberman talking about the molecule of more, which is beautifully positioned for what you talk about, because you read widely at the time. And you said also that neuroscience owed Freud an apology because he talked about wishes, which is an important term. Edmund Rowles talked about the reward system. 
seeking your friend Jak Prancep talked about the seeking system. And we'll talk about that later on when we talk about his work and effective neuroscience. But this was all part of dopamine. And I'd love you to share maybe a word on that that what I mentioned about understanding that everybody is almost like a graphic equalizer, they have different settings of different neurochemicals, therefore, that affects behavior, it affects how they experience the world expects affects how they dream. But also then, what you found in the research when you deeply delved in at that time, that's a very important point, the one you just made, uh, that, you know, the, the uh, patients who have a, a, a deficit of dopamine, uh, they can't help it, uh, but that they will lose motivation. They will lose. Uh, th th there's a symptom called anhedonia, which is you know no nothing gives pleasure. Anergia, which is lack of energy. Um, abulia, which is just doing nothing. You know, uh, it, the, the, these patients uh, can't help it because they lack dopamine. Conversely, you know, if you have too much dopamine, you go manic. Um, you have you're too interested in everything. You, an ADHD, which you mentioned earlier, is is also dopamine uh, mediated. Uh, so you become hyper distractible. Everything's interesting. Everything uh, attracts your attention. Um, your mood becomes too elevated in hypermania and 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 megalomania. And uh, eventually, you know, they 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 go completely psychotic if you give too much. As happens, uh, as you as you know, um, when you're treating Parkinson's disease. Uh, You've got to be very careful not to give too much dopamine because you push the patient into a psychosis, which, by the way, the first symptoms of which are excessive dreaming. So it, it heralds the psychosis. Once the, once the Parkinson's patient starts going into that, too many, too many dreams, too many nightmares, then you, you realize, gosh, you better titrate the, the, the levodopa because next thing they're going to be psychotic. Um it's very important that we recognize that you've got no control over these things. You know, it's, this is just, uh, this is just, uh, uh, and, and so I did something um, which I recommend uh, every neuroscientist or probably every psychiatrist should do, um, which is to take these drugs yourself um, and see what effect it has on you so that you know um, from your own personal experience, what these patients are going through, um, not only in terms of the underlying neurodynamics of, of their illness, but also what what they what what effect it has on them when you give them these drugs. You know, what does it feel like to take an antipsychotic, for example? I can tell you, it feels bloody awful. You know, um, what does it feel like to take levodopa? I can tell you, it feels great. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, so, so I know from my own experience um, that you are changed. You, as a person, uh, as a personality, uh, are, are are radically changed uh, by by uh, uh, um, fluctuations in these brain chemicals. The brain chemicals, which the ones we are talking about, you know, which are fundamental to to our feeling life, to to, to emotional life. Now, you mentioned Freud. Um, Freud had, as 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 you uh, as as you just said, Freud had um, claimed on the basis of purely psychological studies. In other words, talking to people. Um, remember the free association method that I mentioned in our previous uh, discussion. Um, get, getting people to free associate uh, about their dreams. In other words, to say everything that comes into their mind in connection to the remembered dream. Freud observed that those associations aren't random, uh, that they seem to sort of 
they seem to converge on a on a on a subplot on a sort of a, 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 a what he called the latent content, the sort of implicit ideas behind the dream. And he said that they are intensely motivational, um, and that uh, that that moreover that they are wishful, that they are sort of uh, which is which is exactly um, what this dopamine system does. It, it it makes you optimistic, enthusiastic, interested, positive expectations. You know, good things are going to happen. Whoopee! Let me get out there. Um, the uh, the that theory of Freud's was uh, uh, discredited when REM sleep was discovered and the brain mechanisms of REM sleep uh, were discovered, um, which happened between the 50s and the and the 70s of last century. Um, by, by the late 1970s, um, it was well established, REM sleep is driven by acetylcholine, um, and um, the, the person, the scientist who, who made those final discoveries in terms of uh, unpacking how REM sleep works, his name was Alan Hobson, a professor of neurophysiology at Harvard. And uh, he wasted no time in pointing out uh, that this mechanism is incompatible with Freud's theory. Uh, he said dreams are motivationally neutral. That was the phrase that he used um, because they're driven by acetylcholine. Uh, which has no um, obvious motivational, certainly no wishful. You, you don't start feeling like you do when you take dopamine. If you take uh, if you take acetylcholine, you, you feel a little bit a little bit uh, 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 crappy, actually. <laughs> so so it's sort of the opposite of what you would expect if if if, if dreams were wishful. Um, but also, Hobson pointed out, um, if, if dreams happen during REM sleep, then they're happening. Uh, 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 every ninety because REM sleep occurs every ninety minutes. It's a pre-programmed, you know, clockwork. So uh, every ninety minutes, the acetylcholine uh, 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 goes through the roof, uh, and then you're dreaming, uh, and then the and then you know it stops, and then ninety minutes later, woof, and you, you dream again. And so Hobson said this clearly is incompatible with Freudian theory. It's driven by the brain stem, you know, this very a reflex type of part of the brain, nothing to do with the mind, said Hobson. It's, it's driven by acetylcholine, nothing to do with motivation. Uh, and it happens every 90 minutes uh, like clockwork. So it can't be the result of these complicated psychodynamics. Um, so when I discovered uh, 20 years uh, after that, um, because although I started those studies in the late 80s, I, I only published them in the late 90s because it took me 10 years to to finish uh, the work because of the numbers that we needed. Um, I, I, I said, well, first of all, um, the, the critique, the demolition uh, of Freudian dream theory um, on the basis of the discovery of REM sleep, um, it no longer applies because the loss of REM sleep doesn't lead to loss of dreaming. Dreaming is not, is not um, a, a generated by the same mechanism as REM sleep. So REM sleep might happen uh, but with through a, a cholinergic acetylcholine clockwork um, um, ninety minute uh, 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 bursts um, like a reflex, uh, but th that's not what drives dreams. And then secondly, uh, what I found is the part of the brain that does generate dreams is motivational. It's anything but motivationally neutral. In fact, it's the least motivationally neutral part of the brain, uh, and it is it is 
positive motivation. It's, 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 it's wish, if there's any part of the brain, if you had to ask a, a neuroscientist who knows anything about the circuitry for the, the basic affective states um, and say, uh, which one uh, would you associate with wishes, which is the most wishful of the, of the affective circuits of the brain, they would say this one, um, the dopamine one, which, as you said, Jacques Panksepp calls seeking. Um, Kent Berridge calls wanting. Um, Edmund Rawls calls uh, reward and so on. In fact, it's most widely known as the brain reward system. So, uh, you know, this is, this, this is the system you would predict uh, if you were Freud. And, and once, once we started understanding all these things about the brain, which was way after Freud's time, um, you know, that's the one that you would most expect in light of his theory, psychological theory. That is the, the anatomical pathway and, and, and the chemical, the physiological mechanism that you would most likely e expect. So I said to Alan Hobson, he invited me over to Harvard to, you said I was under the radar. I must tell you, after the, after the publication of my findings, which was 1997, um, I, I, I was no longer under the radar because I had, as I told you, I couldn't help but discover things, you know. The, 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 and so um, that, that was a big discovery, that dreaming and REM sleep are doubly dissociable, um, and uh, that dreaming is generated by dopamine, not by acetylcholine. So Alan Hobson invited me over to talk to his group at, in Harvard. And um, and he was, he was you know, perfectly decent about everything. In fact, he wrote a very good review uh, in, uh, of, a, I published a book at that time, called The Neuropsychology of Dreams. He wrote a very, very good review of it. Um, but, but then when I went to his department, I said to him what you just said. Uh, 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 perhaps you were quoting me when you said that. I, I said to, to, to Alan Hobson, I think perhaps we owe Freud an apology because it seems you know, as if he was perhaps on the right track after all. I then went back home, which those days was London. I was living in London at the time uh, that I, that I um, remember I told you in our previous conversation, I went to London to train in psychoanalysis. So um, it was from there that I went to Hobson's lab. And when I got back to London, he sent me an email. This was the early days of emails, I must uh, tell you. Remember, it was still a novelty. Well, maybe you, maybe you don't know. Uh, maybe you're younger than, than me by a long shot. But um, he sent me this email, and in it he said, um, did I hear you correctly uh, that you said that um, you're going to interpret your findings as being supportive of Freudian dream theory? He said, because if you're going to do that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to uh, um, uh, sort of champion them, you know, because uh, he had, as I said, written a very good review of the book, and he and and he had been very decent in our interchange uh, in 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 Boston. Uh, uh, but but he said, you know, I'm going to withdraw all support from you if you're going to use your or interpret your findings as being sympathetic uh, to Freud. So um, that's the kind of thing we, when we when we said. Uh, in the previous discussion, you know, that there were three radical departures in this book, the second one of which was a return to, to, to um, the, the Freudian idea of putting subjectivity and feelings at the, you know, at the center of, uh, of, of, of mental science. Um, this was, the, the, this is and was the kind of response that you get. Um, uh, it's people don't, uh, people don't feel neutral about Freud. <laughs> And regarding Freud, 
you in chapter two then and I'd love to get onto the cortical fallacy but I loved the case studies that you share both your yours and others that you experienced but you said regarding dreams your case your own case of Mr. S the man who lived in a dream helped you translate Freud's inferences about the functional functional mechanisms of subjectivity with their physiological equivalents and this all led to your term neuropsychoanalysis and your journal of the same name. So maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that and Mr. S. Remember, I, I started um, this journey uh, by, by um, way of brain mechanisms of sleep and wakefulness um, because that was the only way to study consciousness at that time. And then uh, I, I brought in dreams uh, and there's an obvious link uh, f- between uh, when it comes to dreams, there's a there's a link with that tradition, the psychoanalytic tradition. Address, the study of dreams was was foundational to uh, to uh, Freud's work, um, but that wasn't the only one. You know, once I'd taken that step, then it led in all sorts of directions. And so um, I, I studied among among other topics uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s um, a a condition called confabulatory amnesia, um, also known as Korsakoff psychosis. Um, and it's caused by damage to a particular part of the brain. And um, the uh, uh, if you interact with these patients, who, who, by the way, let me just explain what confabulatory amnesia is. Uh, they have a- absolutely terrible recall. Uh, so they're amnesic uh, because they can't remember especially recent events, but it goes quite a long way back. Uh, you know, the, 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 the earliest childhood they can remember reasonably well, but, but uh, progressively their, their recall for, 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 for more and more recent events uh, is terrible. But um, much more interesting than that uh, is that they don't realize they're not remembering. Uh, they, they draw up the wrong memory um, and they think uh, that's what they were looking for. Uh, so, um, for example, with Mr. S, who was a case of this kind, um, when he met me, he didn't he didn't think I've never met this guy before, which was the truth. He'd never met me before. But when he met me, he thought, oh, yeah, you're so-and-so, you know, the chap who's on my rowing team. Um, he, he had been on a rowing team 30 years earlier at university because he was now in his 50s. Um, he was an electronic engineer. Next time I saw him, he thought I was a, a, a client of his, bringing him an electronic problem, wanting him to solve, you know, and so on. So they, ha- they have these mistaken memories, uh, but they, they don't realize they're mistaken memories. Uh, and so this is the confabulatory aspect, that they're they, they false memories, as it were. Um, so, and usually quite bizarre, uh, they, you know, with the, the, the sorts of things that they... That they, they get themselves into a terrible muddle, as you can imagine. So um, I, I was studying uh, these patients, and uh, Mr. S is just one example of them. I, I studied a good many of these patients. Uh, I used Mr. S to illustrate the, the uh, in fact, he was one of the first ones I saw. Um, but if you, if you sit and talk to these patients, um, and you, you are, as I was then beginning to become, uh, you're a psychoanalyst who, who, who's looking not only at the behavior and the cognition and the cognitive mechanisms, 
you're looking also at the subjective experience, uh, the 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 emotional uh, uh, dimension uh, of the of the of you know you, you see the behaviors and the cognitions, but you also see something uh, you, you 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 don't neglect uh, the 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 affective side, the emotional side. If you do sit with a patient like that uh, with 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 this bifocal kind of um, lens where you're looking at both things, uh, something stands out, jumps out at you, which is that the confabulations uh, are not uh, motivationally neutral. The confabulations uh, are quite obviously tendentious. In other words, uh, they're quite obviously wishful. Uh, The the, the things that the patient misremembers um, are they? They turn the the, the, the r- rather than it just being a random mistake. Uh, the thing that they think they're remembering um, actually makes the current situation much better. Now, the examples I gave earlier are not are not such good ones. I mean, I could I could force it and say, well, it's it's better to think you know somebody than that you're with a stranger. It's nice to be with somebody that's familiar. It's nice to think that you're 20 years old when you're 50 years old. Um, you know, um, it's nice to think that. This uh, doctor is consulting. Well, this is not a doctor. This is my client. He's consulting me uh, about 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 uh, his problem, rather than I'm consulting him about my problem. You know, so the, the, the wishful element is is there, but it's perhaps not so not so uh, easy to see in the examples that I gave you. Uh, the better examples are uh, that that Mr. S uh, went that he he had a big scar. He had had a brain operation. So he had a big scar on his head. Um, and uh, so he realized I've had an operation, you know, because he doesn't have to remember it. He, it's yeah, he has he has the scar, big. Um, so he he's he he misremembered the operation as being a dental operation, which he had in fact had. He had implants, dental implants, um, which had which had gone swimmingly. Um, and uh, you know, his his chronic dental problems were fixed. Um, he'd also had a pacemaker, cardiac pacemaker fitted. That was another operation he'd had. He had an arrhythmia, and the the pacemaker worked like a charm. Uh, so he he mistook this operation for those operations. This one was botched. Those ones were were, were wonderfully successful. Um, and and so I, again, I, I can't uh, without going uh, on for too long. I can't give you enough examples to to convince you. But so I'll just go straight to this. It looks to me, sitting there uh, as a clinician who's also interested in feelings, that Mr. S is 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 improving his situation in his misremembering. Uh, so, so what I then did, because again, remember in science you don't just have theories; you have to test them. So, I gave a transcript uh, of of Mr. S's confabulations of the first 150 or so confabulations that he made in 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 an interview, um, and. Uh, gave blind raters, in other words, raters who weren't uh, weren't didn't know what it was that my hypothesis was, and I asked them to rate uh, whether whether the confabulation makes things better or worse for the patient. From the patient's point of view, uh, is the confabulated memory uh, does it make things better for him uh, or worse for him affectively? Uh, and the blind raters, uh, to a very high degree of statistical significance, said they make things better for him. Uh, then we did that with ten more patients, and so it wasn't just Mr. S. Uh, all ten of them. Uh, it made uh, blind raters agree. Uh, it made things better for them. Um, and then we did several other studies, including uh, ultimately 
um, studies which got people to rate the mood of the patient immediately before the confabulation and the mood of the patient immediately after the confabulation. And it shows that their mood improves with the confabulation. So um, the, the, this patient that you're talking about, uh, 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 the, 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 the uh, lesion um, uh, is in the, the, this Mr. S, the lesion is in the basal forebrain nuclei, um, which I must tell you by, by a funny historical coincidence, uh, is also a, a set of nuclei that release the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, um, the one, the one that, um, that, that Hobson had identified was responsible for REM sleep. Um, and uh, acetylcholine, that, that one that generates REM sleep, it's from a different part of the brain, the mesopontine tegmentum. This, uh, the, the basal forebrain nuclei, that uh, cholinergic uh, uh, pathway is, is crucial for, uh, for, for what we call uh, error monitoring, for, for, recognize, for detecting uh, errors. Uh, so if you predict you're expecting something uh, and it doesn't happen, that's a prediction error. Um, and acetylcholine is necessary for registering these errors. Um, which is why patients without acetylcholine don't register their errors. Um, and, and, and incidentally, learning, we, we know that acetylcholine of this type is very important for learning. Learning is just recognizing errors. In other words, something new happened, something novel happened, something different from what I expected happened. I better update my, my predictive model of the world. Um, so that's what he had lost. Now, you said um, that through this kind of work, I started being able to map um, the, 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 the Freudian vocabulary, the value of which was that it gives a language for describing subjective experience and, and analyzing it, you know, its component parts. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just for its own sake, what one wants to be anachronistic and use old fashioned Freudian language. It's that this language was what we have, you know, for being able to describe and theorize about this part of the, the mind and brain. Uh, then it gives us a basis for improving our knowledge. You know, once we know which one is which. Um, so, so here's Freud had a concept called reality testing, for example. Um, and clearly, what's missing in Mr. S is reality testing. You know, so that's a so now we know that that's that psychodynamic function. Uh, when I say reality testing, I have, crucially have to add this: that the cholinergic system, the basal forebrain nuclei, um, they they are inhibiting the wishful thing I was talking about earlier. So this is how I want things to be. Um, sorry, mate, it's not like that. Error, you know. So it's so your your the wishful part of the mind is constrained uh, by this reality testing part of the mind, and so you know you slowly uh, get all of your uh, you have to curb all of your enthusiasms and 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 uh, and, and uh, get with the program of how the world really works. So Freud's idea of this wishful system, which he called uh, the libidinal drive, uh, is constrained by this reality testing system. Um, and that's what I've just described to you is the mechanism of what happened in Mr. S. But it's also uh, in, terms of, in terms of dreaming, it's a, that mechanism, that same wishful mechanism that underpins his um, confabulations, that, that mechanism... And, and Freud had posited the same, the same mechanism. This drive is the, you know, this wishful drive is the. So in this way, I slowly pieced, uh, slowly sort of like translated uh, 
psychoanalytic terms and concepts into their neurological equivalents so that we can bring to bear on them all the technologies and methods of modern neuroscience uh, and, and in this way, uh, to use the phrase that I used in our last discussion, finish the job. In other words, pick up where Freud left off. He, he, he had to leave the neuroscience side because there just weren't any worthwhile tools available then. Uh, now they are available. And so I, I, I saw my, uh, at least a, a, a central part of my life's work was, I want to finish that job. I want to, now that we've got these tools, let's apply them to these, uh, the study of these subjective phenomena as they were conceptualized psychologically by Freud. Uh, and 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 uh, let's let's find their anatomical physiological equivalence, and then finish the job in the sense of, you know, make a better theory than than the one that was bequeathed to us on the basis of psychological observations alone. Now, lastly, uh, you 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 mentioned the word neuropsychoanalysis. So um, we are now at the year um, 1999. Um, that's where where we got gotten to in, in the, my journey, and. Um, at that point, um, uh, I was no longer the only one um, who thought this was a good idea to to try to integrate, try to use neuroscientific methods to to um, to um, at the, to at progress psychoanalytical theory and also to use psychoanalytical concepts to progress neuroscientific theory, and um, and all of which is to better understand how the how the instrument of the mind works. The, the, the mind, uh, it, 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 not only in its objective manifestation, but in its subjective, the most interesting part about the mind you know, is that it feels like something. So um, so I, I was beginning to get a few colleagues uh, to uh, alongside those like Hobson, who were not at all impressed uh, with this. Uh, there were others who, who thought, well, it's not a bad idea. Let's, let's, let's do that. And um, you mentioned some names in our previous conversation. Eric Kandel was an example. Uh, he was he was keen to join this this uh, this quest. Um, so was uh, Jak Panksepp, who you mentioned. So was Antonio Damasio, who you mentioned. So was Oliver Sacks, uh, who you mentioned. And you know, and a good few others: uh, Joseph Ledoux, uh, Vilhelmo Ramachandran. Um, uh, uh, Vittorio Galesi and so on. Some really, you know, solid, uh, uh, eminent neuroscientists were were, were, were persuaded <laughs> this is a good idea. If, if and, I was uh, around, man, I would have offered to make you guys tea and just listen in the background. That's why I have the books here on the shelf. By the way, I, I recognise Candel, and I have so many of them on my iPod as well, on my iPad. All the all the books of the guys you mentioned as well. Magnificent conversations, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. So in 1999, uh, we decided that we are going to found a journal that we so that we could commun like-minded scientists could communicate with each other uh, and not have to fight every time we want to have a paper published, uh, fight for the right to do this sort of thing. You know, we, we all agreed it's a good thing to do. And so we needed our own journal. And that journal needed a title. So uh, I came up with the word neuropsychoanalysis. You know, there's neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neurochemistry, uh, and neuropsychology, which is the field I trained in. Uh, and so I thought, let's call this neuropsychoanalysis. The reason I wanted to do that was because I wanted to make clear that because the word neuropsychology was associated with, uh, as I said, it, it might as well have been called neurobehaviorism, because by the word psychology, they were excluding the psyche. 
you know, and I, so the word psychoanalysis makes clear what we mean by psychology um, is a psychology that 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 uh, takes seriously uh, and holds uh, 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 and keeps center stage um, the subjective uh, and 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 emotional uh, 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 character of of the of the psyche of mental life. Then we had our first congress. This new. Uh, this, we had this new journal, but we also started a society um, for neuropsychoanalysis, and we had our first congress. It was at the Royal College of Surgeons uh, of England in in uh, London, um, and uh, our speakers included many of the names I just mentioned. Damasio was there, and Panksepp was there, and and, um, and uh, Sachs was there, and uh, I didn't even know this. Uh, the venue, which, as I said, was the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, that his mother had been a prominent member of that college, and and she had taken him as a child to the Hunterian Museum. Uh, this is a pathological anatomy museum with the most awful specimens. I mean, you see the most horrendous things in that museum. You know, like children with two heads, and you know this sort of thing. And um, and and Sachs said, "My mother took me around this museum. I was traumatized." You know, he remembered it. So anyway, so that, that's then we founded the society that, that we, we've had a congress every year um, in a, ever, ever since, but except for the, the, the two COVID years, we didn't. Um, and uh, the journal's going strong and the society's going strong. And that's what that word, uh, how, the, how that word came, came, came into, into being and why. There's a couple of things I'd love you to share with our audience, maybe. And, and we're... I don't think we'll do justice to jump onto the cortical fallacy today. I think we'll, we might do that another time, Mark, if you're on for it, because uh, it's it's fascinating. And it's one of the key departures you made, which is really important. So I don't think we'll do it justice in the time you're in the middle of work, and you've kindly given us your time, your lunch break <laughs> to join us today. But one of the things you mentioned there was how Freud's work gave you a common language. And it's one of the, the big things in one a thing that's of interest to the people who listen to this show is transformation in organizations or innovation. And having a common language across the organization is absolutely key. That's that's one thing. I'd love your thoughts on that. And then the other is I think it was Ludwig Wittgenstein who said that the limits of our language is the limits of our world. And that goes to your point that well, you had to create a new word like neuropsychoanalysis because it didn't encapsulate what was available now. So I think we're we're seeing that in the world today. We're coming to the limits of of language in a way, and if we use the old tools to describe future modes, we limit ourselves as a, as a species as well. I think this this is an important point you made. Look, uh, I'm going to address what you've just said directly. But before I do, I just want to say something as an aside, which is that the word psychoanalysis also carries baggage. You know, um, so so I, I told you that my colleague said to me, you know, an astronomer studying astrology. You know, that's that's what a neuroscientist studying psychoanalysis is like. Um, and uh, so I, I'm, I've been very mindful of that. That 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 word. Uh, carries connotations uh, of old an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy, you know, nineteenth-century, uh, early twentieth-century um, uh, sort of early stutterings of the field. Um, but but I but I, but the, after psychoanalysis, the field, you know, although it progressed enormously in all sorts of respects, it lost sight 
of those things that I keep on saying, I think we should have center stage if we're going to have a science of the mind, uh, which is subjective experience and uh, and the, and feelings. You know, everything pivots on our feelings. Everything we do is in order to feel better and to not feel worse and so on. So, so uh, I, I wanted to finish that job. In other words, not go back to those old theories, but to but to bring them back in and, and build upon them. So I felt, you know, I don't, not that I don't care, but I mean, even though the word has um, has baggage, uh, sounds old fashioned. I, I think that we have to give credit where credit is due. You know, Freud pioneered that approach. That's the approach we're building upon. And so, you know, whatever cost uh, is attached, I think that's the right word to describe what we're doing. Um, now, the other things you said about language. A common language. You know, it's it's really really important. There's that well-known saying: uh, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Um, and you can you can use that uh, analogy for language. You know, if if the only concepts that you've got are cognitive, uh, then everything looks like cognition. You know, if you don't like when I when I, what I said about confabulatory amnesia, um, if you don't have concepts. Uh, uh, for the subjective and affective dimension of things, then you know you, your your concepts limit what you what you can see. And so this really very obvious thing uh, that confabulations are wishful um, just doesn't even register. You just don't even see it. It's as if it doesn't exist because you don't have a concept. Uh, the concept of wish is absolutely central to 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 uh, the psychoanalytic vocabulary. Um, wish constrained by reality testing and so on. So if you've got these concepts, then you're able to see their, the manifestation. You're able to see examples of those concepts. I um, I live, as you know, in South Africa, um, where the first people, the indigenous population of Southern Africa, uh, the, the 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 they the the, the the sort of origins of of of, of humanity, the direct descendants of of the of the first people, you know, because the out of Africa theory that you know everyone comes from Africa, um, the the greatest diversity in the in human uh, genome is found in the people here, the the indigenous people here, because they are the origin of all these little offsprings, you know. So they're the direct descendants, and uh, so I, I I know several people who studied the languages that were spoken, and and some of those languages are extinct. But some of them are still spoken here, and it's absolutely fascinating. You know, talking to those to those um, uh, experts on on these uh, 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 early pre-colonial Southern African languages, um, you by 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 studying the vocabulary, um, you 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 get to see what kind of world this vocabulary is describing. You know, it's a so the sorts of things that people were experiencing, the sorts of things that mattered, the sort of things that deserve names, you know, it, it's just absolutely incredible. So that illustrates, I think, the thing that you're saying, that, that uh, um, you know, language um, is, I, I don't want to, you know, sort of reify language. There's a lot about the mind uh, that's interesting other than language. But, um, but uh, you know, uh, in our minds, human minds, uh, language plays an absolutely central role um, in in what we can think about and 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 how we pass the world and what we observe and 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 what and what just passes us by, and so it, it, I, I um, 
that point that you've just made is a very, very good one. That uh, that's in a way what I and my colleagues uh, who joined uh, up under the banner of neuropsychoanalysis. That's exactly what we were trying to do to bring these concepts in so that we can also think about these things and enrich our understanding of mental life in the process. And I, I really think that's what we've done. Beautiful. And you, I was just going to say, you've absolutely done that. You've written this book in a very accessible, common language way. But I absolutely love it. As I said to you, I, I, so many aha moments. And it's a pleasure to listen to you t- tell us about them. And I hope these episodes go far and wide and spread the good work that you've done over the past decades as well. So it's it's a fascinating chat. And, and I'm very, very grateful for your time. Grateful for your sharing it, Mark, with our audience. For those who might not have caught episode one, you recommended a, a link that we share, I'm going to put that into the show notes. But where else can people find you, Mark, find out more about your work, etc. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I went to a conference. Uh, it was a few years ago. Um, and somebody came up to me during the coffee break and said, you know, um, you really should get a more professional uh, person uh, to to edit your the the, the videos you're posting. Um, so some of them are quite quite low quality. I mean, not all of them, but some of them are, you know, a bit amateurish. And that's how I discovered um, that um, many, many, many of the lectures that I've given are posted on YouTube, sometimes by people just sitting in the audience filming it, uh, other times uh, by the organizers who film it in a more professional way. So there's there's a plethora of, um, uh, on YouTube, a plethora of, uh, of uh, videos um, of me talking on many, many topics, uh, uh, all of them uh, in one way or another related to what we're talking about in these conversations, because um, as we said in part one of our conversation, um, this book, The Hidden Spring, really is the culmination of my life's work. It sort of brings everything together. Brilliant, Mark. And I can attest to that as well. It's a great read for the people who aren't that much into factual content it's autobiographical. I can't say that word very well. It's biographical as well. So Mark tells the story and how he's gathered all these different lenses, put them together to create this true kaleidoscope of looking at consciousness. It's it's a fascinating read. Author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark Soames, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aidan. I look forward to part three. Likewise.